We're in Judges, chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 24 in a second service kind of way. The topic, Gideon's war against the Midianites is foretold by the angel of the Lord while sitting under the tree at Ophrah. The title of our message, the Ophrah War Tree. Get it? Did you see what I did there? Okay, yeah, all right. Father, thank you so much for bringing us together on this wonderful day. As always, Lord, it is your Holy Spirit who needs to be our teacher. You promised he would be. We know that he's here. He indwells us as individual Christians. He indwells the church when we're gathered together as we are. And so teach us. And Lord, for any who are here that are not believers in Jesus Christ, they're not Christians. Draw them, convict them, convince them of the love of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of their sins. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. Amen. People who are closely associated with caves have pretty strange names. person who explores caves is called a spelunker. Is that the correct pronunciation? Is it spelunker or spelunker? How many are for spelunker? How many are for spelunker? All right. Means nothing to me. A person who dwells in caves is called a troglodyte. That's reaching back. Finish this sentence for me. It's so easy. A caveman can do it. Geico made being a troglodyte attractive with that ad campaign. It was so... <laughs> Excuse me. Jeremy Perkins just texted me and said, a preacher is called a preach slunker. Okay, Jeremy, it's on. Okay, so the Geico ad series so popular that they made a spin-off television show called Cavemen. It only lasted six episodes, but when else has a commercial inspired a show? We still can't shake the caveman appeal. Some of you are on the paleo diet, which is based mainly on foods presumed to have been available to paleolithic humans, such as cavemen, with one major exclusion, of course, dinosaur meat, which I still don't think you can get, even at Costco. But anyway, the Israelites in Judges chapter 6 were going through a troglodyte phase. In verse 2, we read, Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds, which are in the mountains. Every year, as the harvest season arrived, enemies would invade the promised land. They'd take the crops, but even worse, they'd drive their own livestock through, devouring the grazing land. It was so bad that they were compared to a locust plague. The Israelites would hide in dens and caves and strongholds in the mountains. The people of God dealt with their trouble by hiding from it. I want to talk about hiding today. Christians sometimes hide. It's not unusual, for example, for a believer who's going through a severe trial to withdraw from fellowship. I understand it. I've done it myself. Depending on the nature of the trial, you might be embarrassed. You might simply be tired of talking about it over and over again. Whatever it is, you hide. You can be hiding and not even realize it. For example, you might sense that the Lord wants you to do something, but you don't feel up to the task, so you respectfully refuse. It's a kind of spiritual hiding in a cave of false humility. Pastors and Christian workers can become so busy with what they think is ministry that they ignore ministry in their own homes 
to the detriment of their families and in disobedience to the Lord. Their public ministry becomes a well-furnished cave in which they are hiding from responsibilities at home. What should you do if you discover you're a Christian troglodyte? Well, I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, if you realize you're in hiding, relive what Jesus has done for you. And number two, if you realize you're in hiding, receive what Jesus is doing in you. Let's take a look, first of all, at reliving in verses 1 through 10. I read an article this week. It started like this. Fans of the Flintstones and cheap, environmentally friendly homes take heart. Cave dwelling is making a comeback. Down in southern Spain, Spaniards and foreigners are buying and refurbishing century-old caves and turning them into modern homes. In Bisbee, Arizona, the Chulo Canyon Cave House is carved into an outcropping of granite boulder, extending more than 2,000 square feet into a desert grotto. It has all of the good qualities of cave living, like maintaining what they call rock temperature. The house never dips below 66 degrees or gets above 72 degrees without any mechanical uh, heating or air conditioning. Now, it wasn't by choice that the Israelites retreated to caves once a year. They were chased there. And it wasn't to be environmentally friendly. It was to hide from their enemies. And so we pick up the story in verse 1. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens and the caves and the strongholds which are in the mountains. We sing here, you're a good, good father. It's who you are. Being the best father means meeting disobedience with discipline. In this case, the Midianites were God's paddle to administer the swats. Instead of crying out to God, the Israelites continued to do evil and they chose to hide from their enemies. Hiding was hard work. It says they made dens and caves and strongholds. They had to dig out the rock. I mean, sure, sure, there's naturally occurring caves and strongholds, but they also had to dig. It would have been much easier to turn to the Lord. We're going to see when they do turn to the Lord, he responds immediately and saves them. Hiding was, and it is, a terrible strategy. It only prolongs suffering. Instead of hiding, they needed to, and we need to pursue holiness but they stubbornly refuse. Don't be like them. And as we work through these verses, ask the Lord to show you if there's a hiding place in your life that he wants you to come out of. Verse three, so it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up. Also Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number. They would enter the land to destroy it. The Midianites, the Amalekites, these other people from the east were pirates on land. They would arrive, raid, and rape the land before moving on. The Lord has overcome the world by his victory on the cross and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. He has not, however, established his full victory yet on the earth. And by that, I mean he has not returned to rule and reign over the earth. We are not in the kingdom age when Jesus is literally sitting in Jerusalem ruling over the earth. He's going to at his second coming. But for now, Satan is allowed to operate as the God of this world. 
And along with his demons, he wants to rob and kill and destroy. And he especially wants to rob you and kill you and destroy you. We are Satan's high value targets. It's because if he can get you and I to hide rather than take our stand on the battlefield, if he can get us to withdraw and retreat, he can continue to hold non-believers captive because we're not there on the front lines anymore to preach the gospel. And, and so there's a, you, you have value in the preaching of the gospel and he wants to destroy that and he'll do anything he can against you to do so. And so verse 6, so Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Finally, after seven hard years, they cried out to the Lord. If you ever think God's discipline is harsh, it's not. Human stubbornness is legendary. God meets disobedience with the exact measure of discipline that's called for. As parents, we've all, I would gather, struggled with disciplining our children. Is it too severe? Is it not severe enough? Where is the balance? How do you strike that? We've asked each other opinions and read books and all. It's, it's, it's difficult sometimes uh, to strike that balance as a good parent. God's discipline is always perfectly measured to the situation. And while people read these Old Testament stories and think that God is harsh and cruel and goes overboard with his discipline, seven years of this ravaging of the land, the thing to focus on is that the minute the Israelites cried out to him, the minute they yielded to his discipline, he delivered them. It was on account of their own stubbornness and, and their hard-heartedness that God had to continue in this vein. And it came to pass, verse 7, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel. Now, this is a little different. So far in the book of Judges, when the people cried out, God raised up a military hero. He's going to do that, but this time first, they got a prophet. When you cry out to God... He immediately responds, but it might not be in the deliverance you have asked for in the age in which we live. For example, his response is more likely to be my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. God can do amazing, miraculous things. And we, we see that some of you've seen it in your own life. But more often than not, in the age in which we live, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. And when people see my strength in your weakness, they will be drawn to my son, Jesus Christ. You're more likely to hear for our light affliction, which but for a moment worketh for us a far and more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Those two things go together so beautifully. My grace is sufficient for you. And therefore, whatever you're going through is a light affliction, which is going to work together for you a weight of glory in eternity. So God is answering us. He has answered us. And it's an immediate presence that we have. Verse 8, the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. There are books I can read over and over again. There are movies I've seen dozens of times. At Christmas time, there are stories we have read aloud for decades. They have in common that they are great stories told by great storytellers. God is the greatest storyteller, and one of the stories he loves to tell and retell to the Israelites is that of his mighty power in delivering them from bondage in Egypt 
in the Exodus. It's what Passover is all about every year to retell their deliverance from Egypt. Of course, you understand that by story, I mean nonfiction history. It really happened just as recorded in the Bible. God did not mightily deliver the Israelites from 400 years of slavery in order for them to become slaves again in the promised land. His prophet was looking back to remind them of their identity and of God's intentions. Verse 9, And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. God didn't expend his strength getting them out of Egypt. He didn't retire, leaving it up to them to conquer their enemies in their own strength. No, he drove out the Canaanites and gave Israel the land that was rightfully theirs. God used them for sure, but no one who was at Jericho when the walls fell or there the day the sun stood still in that battle, no one would attribute any of those victories to the armies of Israel. It was clear that God was leading the battle. God held back the Red Sea. He held back the Jordan River. He even stopped the sun and he would do the miraculous again for them when necessary. Verse 10, also, I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. They feared the gods of the Amorites means that they showed reverential fear towards them. The reverential fear and honor that was due to Jehovah. They worshiped the gods of the Canaanites. Well, I've previously described those gods. Baal and Ashtarte were supposed to be in charge of the weather and the harvest respectfully. And so you have to get the weather together with the harvest in order to have a good situation. And, and the Canaanite priests taught that they had to have God sex in order for the rains to fall and the crops to grow. The priests of Baal taught that their gods needed sex therapy. So Canaanites went up to the high places where they supposed their gods could better see them. And they had orgies and engaged in bestiality. They put on live hardcore porn shows for their gods. Israelites saw this and instead of vomiting, they wanted in on it. And they exchanged Jehovah and the pursuit of holiness and the law of God for these rituals. Now, we've come to verse 10, so it's time to deliver the application. The Israelites were in hiding, and the Lord's strategy to draw them out and back to obedience was to have them relive his power on their behalf. It's good for us to relive his power on our behalf. I don't want to keep giving my testimony over and over but I can say that God was powerful on my behalf. While I was dead in trespasses and sins, while I was a totally depraved individual, just like all of you were at some point in your life, God the Holy Spirit was nevertheless able through the power of the cross to free my will to see Jesus Christ as my Savior. And by the grace of God, through faith, I was able to enable to come to know Jesus Christ. To have my sins forgiven and to have the Holy Spirit come and reside within me. By God's free gift, by his abundant grace, I was saved. I became a new creation. Old things passed away and all things became new. And so have many of you that same testimony, having come to Christ as an adult. And it wasn't just for eternity, for heaven, as great as that is, it was for life. Since I've been saved these past 41 years, God has shown himself powerful over the years in many different ways. How sad for me that I'm still prone to hiding. The trials and the troubles, they just keep coming. 
In fact, they get more sinister the longer the enemy has to study my life. If you have any thoughts that the Christian life is going to get easier as you become more mature, you need to check those at the door. Because the devil and his minions are super intelligent beings who have nothing else to do but to plot your demise and destruction and fall. And they're, they're doing it right now as we're here. They're thinking of things that if the Lord doesn't come, that in the next 10 years, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, are going to be so devastating potentially as to rob and kill and destroy you. But God will come and he'll say, Gene, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Your light affliction is but for a moment. And it's working for you a far more eternal weight of glory. And all he asks me to do and you to do is to stand in spiritual armor. Just helmet of righteousness, breastplate of faith, those kinds of things. And we can endure. And in that endurance, we defeat our enemy. And so that's what's going on here. Rather than hide, I need to take my stand. Rather than find a cave to retreat to, I need to take that stand with the weapons of my spiritual warfare. And so I would encourage you, relive God's salvation, his power in your life. Not just the moment you got saved, but some of the amazing things that have happened to you over the years. Even if you're not in hiding, reliving what he has done for you, it's a wonderful discipline to practice. Your life is a great story that the greatest storyteller is telling. It's not over yet. And believe me, it is a great story. It's, it's a book that he loves to pull out and read over and over again and complete. And it'll be read, as it were, in heaven. And you'll see things that you, we can't possibly see now. Amazing things. You know. Do you ever think, do you ever wonder how many times you were saved from death so that you could maybe affect someone else's life and that connection and they could I mean we can't see the things that God has done on our behalf he asks us to believe that by faith he's a great storyteller right we're reading his stories here his non-fiction stories and they're great and that's the story that he wants to tell about you so hang in there and don't let the devil have the upper hand now verses 11 through 24 if you realize you're in hiding, receive what Jesus is doing in you. I'll tell you right now, burglars are definitely going to toss your bed and look under your mattress. It's not a very good hiding place. I know some of you have stuff under your mattress right now. And you think, wow, if I get burglared today, they're not going to look there. You can talk to my son. And uh, he's been burgled twice when they lived out in the country. Uh, and the bed, it's like, get to the bed. I think that's usually where people keep their shotgun so that when they get robbed, they can, you know, have their confrontation. But when you're just being burgled, they're fine. So not finding anything under your bed, they move to other areas of your house. Now, there are a multitude of simulated objects on the market that are hiding places for small items. You might have some. By far, the weirdest I've seen is a realistic looking head of iceberg lettuce, which has a hidden compartment. The manufacturer says... Thieves will never dream of looking in this head of iceberg lettuce. Place it in your refrigerator. That's the first thing you have to remember. Don't just have it out on the counter. <laughs> What's this lettuce doing here, Fred? <clears throat> 
Place it in your refrigerator in the vegetable compartment with your most valuable small items inside for safekeeping. I wanted to get one just to see how realistic it is. I mean, if they open the fridge and see a plastic iceberg lettuce in there, I mean, how? Anyway, it's $99 from a retailer named Bim Bam Banana. It's a real thing, believe me. Bim Bam Banana. Now, as we meet Gideon, he thinks he's found his head of lettuce, so to speak, to keep him hidden. Verse 11. Now, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which is in Ophrah. Not Oprah, but Ophrah which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord is an Old Testament physical appearance of Jesus before his incarnation in a human body. This is at least the third time he has been mentioned in the book of Judges. We're not told how long the angel of the Lord sat there watching Gideon, but it's clear Gideon wasn't paying very close attention because he doesn't notice him until he is greeted by him. I think he scared him, to tell you the truth. Verse 12, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now the Lord refers to Gideon as a mighty man of valor, and in verse 14, he'll send him out saying, Go in this might of yours. He was anything but a mighty man of valor, and he had no might of his own. But after we're done working through this section, we'll return to this as our application. We'll talk more about this. For now, let's just see Gideon's story unfold. Verse 13. Here's the angel of the Lord now. We've got this set up. And he's just made this fantastic greeting. And this is the first thing Gideon says to him. Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Gideon verbalized what I believe is the number one problem people have with God. If he exists, why does he permit evil and suffering? C.S. Lewis called it the problem of pain. Where is God when it hurts is the title of Philip Yancey's book on that subject. Johnny Erickson Tata has written books about it, like Making Sense of Suffering and Where's My Miracle? Without our testimony about suffering, the world is left to conclude that God is either all-powerful but unloving or that he is loving but not powerful. Those are the, if you take Christianity out of the mix, if we do not speak to this problem, philosophy and psychology come to one of those two conclusions. If there's a God, he loves you but he can't help you, or he could help you but he doesn't love you. Now, neither of those are true because he is both omnipotent and he is love. Our answer is that God created man with free will because love is not love without the freedom to choose. When Adam and Eve exercised their free will, they disobeyed God and it brought creation exactly what God had warned them about, sin and death. But ever since that very moment, God has been promoting a plan to reconcile mankind and all of creation back to himself. That plan, born of power and love, is the death of Jesus as the God-man on the cross. God is not willing that any of our race should perish. He offers eternal life to all. He is long-suffering, waiting for people to choose eternal life. 
I, I don't know how to describe this part of it, but for lack of a better word, the complexity of what it means to be human and to have free will requires exactly the amount of time God is taking in order to resolve that issue. Now, it doesn't help us much to know that one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day with the Lord. A thousand years seems like a, an awful long time to us. And this thing called the human race has been going on for around 7,000 years. And, and it gives rise to our thinking that why is God taking so long? He's taking so long because it takes exactly this amount of time to promise a redeemer in the Garden of Eden and then create a, uh, a line of people through which he can come, the sinless savior born of a virgin. I mean, you try having a virgin birth. I mean, that's some tough stuff, you know. I mean, there's some difficult things going on when you're interacting with weird human beings to try and redeem the universe. And so God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. The person that is accusing God, that's shaking his fist at God, saying, why do you allow suffering? He, God would say to him, because I want you to be saved. I want to alleviate and avoid all of your suffering, alleviate it now, but avoid it for all eternity. I want you in heaven and not in hell. While God's long suffering waits, obviously terrible things happen in the world, but they happen as a result of sin. One day God will act finally and decisively he'll end suffering and sin. But when he does, the offer of salvation in Jesus will expire for all those who have rejected him. Sometimes you're suffering is just your own fault too. Gideon ignored the rebuke of the prophet in his complaint. Gideon, he had the first part of the prophecy downright. He studied that part of it. Whether it had only come to him half or whether he had ignored the other half, he, he got the part that God in the past used to be powerful and wonderful and do things for Israel. But he cut it off there and he says, how come he's not doing that now? Well, the prophet had answered that. So because you are worshiping the gods of the Midianites and the Amalekites and the Canaanites. And as long as you're doing that, I can't bless that. I can't I can't have you up at the high places and in, in orgies doing that kind of weird stuff. You, you guys are going to have to come back to me and then I'll deal with you. It was because the Israelites chose to fear Baal and Astarte that the Lord was disciplining them. And, and so that's our answer. Mankind brought sin into the universe and God worked to, to defeat that and to destroy that. And he's working still. And in the meantime, people have an opportunity to be saved. So verse 14, then the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Now, the first thing I notice is that God doesn't explain anything to Gideon. And he's not under any obligation to explain everything to us, especially when he's already given us his word. And so you can ask God anything you want, and I would encourage you to do that, but he doesn't necessarily have to answer you. Or he has answered. In, in Gideon's case, he'd given, he, he'd given the answer to this in the prophecy, and Gideon was ignoring the answer. But the thing I really notice, and what's great to realize, is that the angel of the Lord sends Gideon in spite of his complaints. God is incredibly gracious. I mean, he comes and he says, you mighty man of valor to a guy who's hiding in a wine press. I'm going to send you in your strength and you'll defeat the Midianites as one man, as if there was just one Midianite. That's the only thing you have to worry about. 
And Gideon complains, and not just complains, he, he, he refuses. I mean, Moses refused. He says, I, I don't want to do it. Gideon actually complains and says, where is God? I don't see God and stuff. And the Lord ignores that and says, I'm still going to send you. You're the guy. It's incredible. It tells me that I don't need to be in a perfect place for God to use me. Should I sin that grace might abound? Of course not. That's ridiculous. But God wants to use me right where I'm at. So he said to him, oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my father's house. This isn't really true. Later in the story, we're going to see that Gideon had 10 servants and that his dad was a prominent leader in their local community. And so Gideon is just kind of lying and hiding behind a false humility. It was his cave. And the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. As Emerald Lagasse would say, bam, or maybe bim, bam, banana. We should bring that up, huh? That's our new thing. Somebody does something great. Bim, bam, banana. Maybe I should research that more before we start saying that. It's going to hit Facebook and then local pastor encourages bim, bam, banana. Probably means something to the occult. I'm probably calling up demons from the ground right now. But bim, bam, banana. <laughs> so what more do you need? Well, Gideon needed a lot more, apparently, because he said, if I have found favor in your sight, which he had, how could you find any more favor than this? I would have killed him. Angels wouldn't have taken this kind of guff. Is guff a real thing? When the angel came and told Zacharias, your wife is going to have a baby and he's going to be John the Baptist. And I, he said, how do I know if that's true? He goes, I'll tell you how you know if it's true. You're going to be mute until he's born. Mm, zip it. When you go on this kind of tack with angels, they, they exercise some freedom of their own. God could not have shown Gideon any more favor than he'd shown him. If I found favor in your sight, show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I'll wait until you come back. We talk a lot about waiting on the Lord, right? And that's a good thing. Let's wait on the Lord. And we mean let's have a time of prayer. Let's get into our devotions or let's just, you know, meditate on the word. But do we realize how much the Lord waits for us? Is there something he has asked us to do, asked me to do, that we're keeping him waiting to perform? Think about that. The angel of the Lord, if anybody had a full schedule, anybody who had a calendar that was full, it was probably the angel of the Lord. I mean, sure, he had a lot to do there in the promised land. And after all of this, Gideon says, I want you to wait for me while I prepare an offering that you didn't ask for so that you can give me a sign that you don't want to give me. And the angel of the Lord remarkably says, okay, I have no place to be. I can hang out here while you go prepare. And this is something that took quite a bit of time. Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and he put the broth in a pot. He brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. The angel of God said to him, take the meat. 
and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And so he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and he touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire arose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Gideon got his sign and it was remarkable, but he lost the sight of the Lord. God did the sign and then he was gone. Be careful what you ask for, or at least ask for better things. Ask for the most spiritual thing. It would have been better for him to just say, Lord, can you sit here and talk with me for a while? Rather than have a miracle. And a lot of times, I hesitate to say it because I don't like saying it. It's better for me to hang out with the Lord in my trial than for him to eliminate my trial. Because I get to know him better. If he eliminates my trial, I know his power. But if he keeps me in it, I know his person. And that that would be better. Gideon got his sign, but he lost the Lord. Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. You can search the scriptures. You're not going to find a bigger scaredy cat than Gideon. He apparently thought superstitiously that he was going to die because he saw the angel of the Lord. I say he was being superstitious because the angel of the Lord had appeared other times without any Israelite who saw him dying. It wasn't one of those things where he came and said, well, now that you've seen me, I have to kill you. It didn't work that way. And so I just wonder if Gideon was still looking for an excuse to disobey the Lord. Oh, well, I'm going to die. I better get my affairs in order. I guess I won't be able to go on that Midian mission after all. Gideon is really a weasel. Then the Lord said to him, peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. The Lord apparently spoke to Gideon as an audible voice from heaven. He let him know he wasn't going to die and he wouldn't let him off the hook is what this is really about. You're still going to do what I told you. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. To this day, it is still in Ophrah of the Abizarites. He regarded that rock upon which the Lord had consumed his offering as it was an altar, as if it was an altar. You can regard almost anything in your life as an altar because we offer ourselves to God living sacrifices. Now, the Lord said, peace be with you. So Gideon named the altar. The Lord is peace. Gideon thus expresses that his knowledge of the Lord had deepened. He knew his Lord better after this encounter than he had before. And so there's one positive thing that comes out of this. He he recognizes that the Lord and he are at peace. It's always my prayer that after we're done at Sunday morning or Wednesday night, that we have a Uh, a deeper knowledge and understanding of some quality or characteristic of the Lord. The altar Gideon dedicated was still standing in the days of Samuel, who we believe is the human author of this God-breathed book. Gideon was anything but a mighty man of valor, yet that was how the Lord addressed him. He had no might of his own, but that's how Jesus sent him. So he comes to him. You're the mighty man of valor. I'm sending you in your strength. I think it's a mistake to think that the Lord saw Gideon's potential to become a mighty man of valor with the proper training. That's how we always think. We revel in the weakling or the misfit whose potential is somehow tapped, rendering him or her a hero. You can probably think of a dozen feature films in which the main character suffers a defeat or is a weakling. But over time, with intense training by a mentor or a master, he or she returns to be victorious. 
Do you see any potential at all in Gideon? You don't, and guess what? You won't. Gideon is a total bust. We always talk about Samson, and, and well, we should. I mean, he had some problems. But Gideon is a total bust. At the end of Gideon's life, he will do something that results in the setting up of an idol. And so he always is kind of this weak character. But the angel of the Lord saw Gideon as a mighty man of valor because he was one right then if he would only receive it. He was called to go in this might of yours and save Israel from the head, hand rather of the Midianites. What might? Well, in verse 16, he says, I will be with you and you shall defeat the Midianites as if there were only one of them. God's calling was God's enabling. If you have the freedom to write in your Bible or to etch on your screen of your iPad. <laughs> God's calling is God's enabling. I should say that every day. I should say it every week to you. It's, it's a profound statement. Gideon could do what the angel of the Lord told him to do because the Lord had called him to do it and would therefore empower him to do it. Anything you read in your Bible that is a commandment, anything that you're called upon to endure in terms of trials or sufferings or temptations, God's calling to do it is his enabling to do it. So when I read something in the word, and I, I don't have to wonder if I can do it or when I can do it. See, that's where we get stumbled. I'll think about something, I think, well... In a few years, when I'm as mature as so-and-so, then I'll be able to do that. I'll be able to fulfill that command. I wish I was more mature in this trial. I, I should be more mature in this trial. But I'm just going to blow it because I, I'm not mature enough. And the angel of the Lord would come to you and I, and this is, the, this is the whole message today. You mighty man of valor, you mighty woman of valor, go in my might. Go in your might, which is my might, because what I've called you to do, I have enabled you to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, prayer and Bible study, the disciplines of a godly man and woman, all of those things, super important to the Christian life. I don't want to give anybody the impression that you just sit around like a Gideon all the time in a wine press and, you know, God calls you to do great things. We, we want to do those things because we want to know the Lord. We want to get closer to the Lord. I, I don't pray and read the Bible so that I can be stronger in my trials. I want to know Jesus personally. I want to spend time with the Lord. I love him. He loves me. I fail sometimes. I get away from that. I leave my first love. We all do that. And then Jesus comes and patiently says, you need to repent. Get back to your first love. But that's all a part of just, I love Jesus and I want to be with him. If you're in love with someone, you want to be with that person. And you don't look at your relationship with them as a series of disciplines. If you do, you need to get back to your first love. And so Jesus comes and he says, now, separate from all that in your walk, this is what I'm telling you you can do or what you need to endure. And I'm to think wherever I etched out, God's calling is God's enabling right now. Will I always do it perfectly? Oh, no. I'll be more of a Gideon than I'd like to admit. 
but it doesn't change the situation. God chose Gideon, I believe, for this very reason. Because we would never understand Gideon to be getting stronger and stronger until God said, okay, now I can send you to the Midianites. When I found you hiding, you challenged me, but now we've gone through the three-step program to make you a man of God. No, it doesn't happen. He, he, in a, f- a few verses, he's going to have this whole fleece thing where he doesn't believe God at all. He says, oh, Lord, uh, I still don't see this. After your signs and your patience and all that, can you do some goofy stuff with this fleece I'm going to lay out here? And, and Gideon, he just doesn't, and I told you, at the end of his life, he doesn't finish well. And it's not an excuse, but it, this, is the, this is the Lord saying, you're my man, you're my woman of valor. Take your stand. Don't hide. We don't have time to be hiding anymore because the time is short. We need to be on the battlefield in our full armor, which is able to take down the strongholds of the enemy. And believe me, he has strongholds. And believe me, he's coming for you. And so just get up, put on the armor, and stand. Let's pray.